clear a little here, space for me here. This is so great being with you guys again. I mean, it is an honor, it is a privilege, and dang if it isn't fun. <laughs> I think back to December 28th. 2008. That was the last time I was on this platform speaking. And it was my last Sunday here after 11 years of being on staff. And finished up and the new direction. What would God bring? What would we end up doing? And so we, with anticipation, Janice and I said, okay, what's next? What's going on, God? And the weeks went by. Months started to go by. And I'm saying, what's happening? Nothing. That's what's happening. What's taking place? And my heart started to change at that point. It was, you know, you know the, the, the real answer to all this is to get another staff position. That's what I need to have. I need to have another staff position. If I had another staff position, all these other things would work out. And slowly that became what I was hoping in. That became my treasure. That became where I was seeking my strength. And I began to realize that I was losing my first love. That Jesus wasn't enough. And I was seeking other things more than him. It was at that point that I realized this is wrong. And God began to take me on another journey. A journey of discovering how do I gain once again Jesus as my first love. And so months went by and God started to create what Janice and I do now as we are co-founders of a nonprofit organization called Redemptive Coaching. And our passion within that is we work with individuals, we work with couples, we work with families. Our passion is to help them to have Jesus as their first love. Today, what's your first love? What is the last five Years, seven months, as I look at my life, the last five years, seven months for you, what's it been like? Where has God taken you? Do you find yourself at this time with Jesus as your first love? Pastor Bob asked me to speak and to overview somewhat the book of Ephesians. That's a book in which Paul wrote a letter to the believers in Ephesus, but it was also a letter that he wanted to be passed around to other churches in Asia Minor. And one of the major themes within that book is this very thing. How do you keep Jesus as your first love in a fallen world? And today I want you to examine your own heart and see where you find yourself and to discover from the book of Ephesians, if you're struggling, how, once again, Jesus can be restored as your first love. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I guess what excites me so much about you is you never lose sight of us. So easily we lose sight of you. 
but you were faithful always. Today, I trust that everyone here will have a deep sense of that. That, Father, they will come to that point of wanting you more than anything or anyone in their life. So, Father, guide us now as we look into your word so that you are honored and so that you are made much of in all that we do. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Bob asked me to overview Ephesians, well, I started to read Ephesians and pray about it and think about it. And the impression that came to me at this point is, whatever happened to that church? What took place in Ephesus? And is there anything within the New Testament that tells us what life was like for believers in Ephesus after this letter was written? And yes, there is. Would you turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 2. We want to see Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus. Ephesians, I should say, Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 2. And these are Jesus' words to the church. Chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. What does it mean to have Jesus as your first love? Well, the text here doesn't tell us what it means, but it tells us what it doesn't mean. Look at verse 2 and 3. Having Jesus as your first love is more than toil. It is more than perseverance. It is more than not willing to tolerate evil. It is even more than perseverance that's to the point where you're enduring for the sake of Jesus. Him, Jesus, as your first love is more than that. And you know what's scary about that? Is we can look on the outside, we can even act in bold ways in the name of Jesus and still not have Him as our first love. So where do we... What do we find out what this means, Jesus' first love? Go to the very last verse in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 23. And we get a basic understanding of what it means. And this is how Paul ends the book of Ephesians. In verse 24 of chapter 6 of Ephesians, it says, Grace be with all those Here it is. Who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. A love for Jesus is an incorruptible love. Well, what does incorruptible mean? Well, it means without corruption. It means pure. It means there is no other things in there. The way that we like to state it at Redemptive Coaching is 
It's loving Jesus more than anyone or anything. You see, it's very easy for us to start loving other things or maybe other people more than Jesus. And when we do that, you know what that's called? It's called an idol in our life. We've come to the point where we're worshiping something more than Jesus. And though we don't have little statues like we see in the Old Testament, we have idols of the heart. And there are things that we begin to love more than Jesus. And quite often, they can be good things. They can be our family. They can be husband, wife. They can be friends. They can be so many different things. But if we are loving them more than Jesus, then those good things, we're trying to make God things, and they become wrong things in our life. The reality is, we can't love those other people the way we're intending or way that God wants us to unless we are loving Jesus most. Loving Jesus with an incorruptible love. Wait a minute. Isn't that what Jesus does for us? I can't love him without some corruption in my life. I know my heart. I know the reality that those things sneak into my life, and sometimes they just boldly come in, and I let them. What do we do at that point in our life when we know that Jesus is no longer our first love? Go back, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This is where Jesus tells us what you do when he no longer is your first love. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. And it says there, first part, Therefore, this is what Jesus wants us to do, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Those three things, remember, repent, do the first deeds, is what Jesus says will help restore him as your first love. Interestingly enough, you can break down the book of Ephesians in those three areas. The first three chapters are about remembrance, remembering who God is, remembering who you truly are, remembering what the purpose is for us here. And so Paul talks about that in the first three chapters of Ephesians. The next chapters, 4 through 6, deal with this idea of repentance and doing the first deeds. It talks about walk in a manner worthy of our God. Remove those things which keep you from loving Him. It talks about such things as what is marriage about? And how do you love Christ within your marriage as you're loving your spouse? It talks about family relationship. It talks about the church. It talks about so many different things, which are the first deeds. Because we learn to do those things out of love for Jesus, not just merely to do them. But that's hard. It's difficult. How do I go about that? How do I have that incorruptible love, that pure love, that love that is striving to love Jesus more than anyone or anything? 
What we just looked at and turned back to Ephesians chapter 6, that last verse, verse 24. The first thing that Jesus gave us so that we can learn to love him is the church. That's what the book of Ephesians talks about. How it is we encourage and strengthen each other in learning to love Jesus. But there's something that's even more fundamental and critical for our ability to be able to love him. And that's in verse 23. You see, in reality, you can't have verse 24 unless you have verse 23. Look what it says there. It says, Peace be to the brethren. And listen to this. And love with faith from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, where does this love come from? Where does our faith come from? It comes from God. You see, this is a relationship that we build and develop with him. Matter of fact, if you have a, like an a NIV Bible or whatever, it doesn't use the word incorruptible, even though that's the proper Greek word. It uses such word as undying, a love that never ends. And there's the reality of it. God keeps that love alive. Because he's the author of that love. And we learn to grow in that, in that relationship with him. That's how we're able to keep a love and to love him more than anyone or anything. And that's what I want us to spend our time looking at. The remembrance idea. Maybe today, for whatever reasons, you've struggled just remembering these things. Keeping these things close to your heart. And that's how Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians. Is beginning in verse 17, he gives his prayer, one of two prayers he uses within the book, to create that sense of remembrance. It's a prayer of remembrance. And it begins with the idea that in a relationship you have to know the other person. That knowledge is of critical importance. Look what it says in verse 17 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. It says, as he speaks to his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The word that's used there is epigenosko. And it talks about a relational kind of knowing. It talks about an experiential type of knowing. That's a big thing in our society, in this postmodern world we live in, because that's how our society bases everything. Truth is known through your experience. But that's not where God leaves it. Because if you go into verse 18, that idea of knowing continues. If you go down to the latter half, it says, well, beginning at the uh, verse 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? A different word is used there. Oida, for no. And this speaks of an absolute truth. 
that isn't based on experience. It's not based on emotion. It is absolute, clear truth. And in this relationship with God, you have to have both. You have to have getting to know him in life circumstances and the experience that's around you, but it's all based within the absolute truth of him. And that's where I struggled. I began to define truth by the experience that I was having. Nothing's happening. Where's God? I just moved into this whole new area expecting him to do wonderful things and nothing's taking place. And so my experience was starting to say to me, God doesn't care. God doesn't love me anymore. But the reality is, truth defines experience. Experience does not define truth. We need absolute truth. We need the oida truth. And that's where I needed to go back to, is to understand that God has made clear the remembrance of it, of these facts that we'll be looking at, that truth must define our experience. And so I had to move into that direction. Not only does truth define our experience, truth is designed to transform us. And so he goes on in his prayer at the beginning of verse 18 to say, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Eyes of your heart? What in the world does that mean? My, eye, my heart doesn't have eyes. What he's speaking about, first, heart, is not what you think of on Valentine's Day. It's talking about the core, the center of who you are. That's what he means by heart. And this idea of having your heart enlightened is the idea of getting truth deep within your heart. Matter of fact, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, listen carefully, above all else that you might think of, guard your heart, for from it everything else flows and comes out. So when we experience that wrong thinking or those negative emotions, or that hurtful behavior, it's come from our heart. In redemptive coaching, that's what we have to help people understand. Because people come in to us, and they want quick solutions. They say, just give me A, B, C, and D, so that I can correct the situation, and that's fine. They're looking for behavioral answers to correcting behavioral problems. And God says, that's not how you do it you got to go to the heart because I'm the one who transforms the heart and your heart must be transformed. If you want lasting change in your life as you know God wants to bring, it only comes when you allow him to create heart change, to transform your heart. Because if all you're seeking is behavioral change, It won't last. Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried to change something and all you do is just change the behavior and it doesn't last that long? It's kind of like when we go out and uh, we do weeding in the yard and we're kind of lazy and so we just pull the top of the weed off. (laughs) It's gone. What happens? It comes back, doesn't it? And that's what we do when all we attempt is just to replace one behavior with the other. 
One guy I was working with had trouble with alcohol. So he thought, well, I'm going to start an exercise program. And I'll just simply substitute that for exercising. It didn't last long. He had to go to the heart. Heart changes what's needed. Remembrance. These things. Knowing that truth must be learned in our experience of life, but it must be interpreted by absolute truth. And if change is to come, it must be heart change that God is creating. And these things take place as we stand and we bring into our heart that absolute truth that God wants. And that's what we see as we continue in verse 18. The first one that is spoken of, as it says there, it says, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Okay, I have an exercise for you. Hopefully you saw the little bulletin insert and following that. Well, if you look on the back half where it says hope of his calling, there's a little exercise I want you to take right now if you have a pencil or something or just quickly think in your mind of it. And that is, I want you to write down what do you believe, or should say, who do you believe you are? Write those things down right now. Who are you? What defines you? Go ahead and write quickly just a few of those things down. Who do you believe you are? Now, what I want you to do as you're looking at that list is I want you to cross off everything that you will not be in heaven. Everything that you will not be in heaven that you put on your list of who you are, I want you to cross off. Let me give you a little helpful hint along that. You will not be married in heaven. You will not be a parent in heaven. You will not have the job that you have in heaven. And so forth and so on. (laughs) I remember doing this one time with a group. And this one guy, he looked lost. He had crossed off everything on his list. Who am I? And I said, great. Now that your hands are empty, let Jesus fill them. Who are we? And this is important. This is your true identity. We see it in verses 4 through 13. Or actually, make that verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Listen carefully of who you are. You are the blessed. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are adopted. You are sons. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are heirs. You are indwelt by God himself. You are saints. You are his. That's who you truly are. Well, why is that important to know these things? Well, what does Paul say there? It is what? It's the hope of his calling. 
You see, this is where we gain the hope we need in our life. When people come to us in redemptive coaching, it's without hope. They've reached the end of their rope. They don't know what to do. And one of the main things that we do with them is to restore the hope of helping them once again to see who they truly are instead of who they have made themselves and robbed themselves of the identity that they have. Sometimes people come in and what is robbed, their true identity are good things. Their family, their marriage, their job, whatever it might be. The problem here is And those of you here with more life experience than others know the reality of this. At some point, all the good things in your life like that will disappoint you. Your mate will disappoint you. Your kids will disappoint you. Your friends will disappoint you at some point. And if you're finding your identity in them, you'll be devastated. You'll have nothing to stand on. Matter of fact, you won't know how to deal with it because you don't have any idea who you are. That's why we need to find our hope in truly who we are because then we can take responsibility for what it is. Then we can deal with it in a healthy and right way. Even these good things are not who you are. And then we see a lot of people who have allowed bad things to rob them of their identity. We see people who find their identity in shame find their identity in a false sense of guilt within their lives. We find people who find themselves in false body images, in other things which around them is telling them, this is who you truly are. We work with people in addictions, alcohol, drugs, sexual addictions. I'm here to tell you, that's not who you are or if you are in Jesus Christ. Those are, that's not your identity and that needs to change. Yes, you need to take responsibility for those things. Yes, those things need to be worked through redemptively as God works in your heart and life. But that is not who you are. So today, let me ask you, where's your hope? Where are you finding the hope in your life? There is one who truly is your hope. And Paul continues in remembrance to the next area. Not only the hope of his calling, but what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? As we look briefly at verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, I mentioned a number of different things which are blessings for us, which are our true identity. And as I was looking at that and saying, inheritance, inheritance, what is it? Something just jumped out at me. What is our greatest treasure? You know what it is? It's him. He is our greatest treasure. And it's, it's, it's leaping out on the page here. I mean, look at this. What does it say in verse 18? It says, it is his calling. It is his inheritance. It is his power in verse 19. 
He is our greatest treasure. And we're told in Matthew that where you find your treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. Let me read 3 through 14 in the way that I believe it is meant to be read. With the understanding that the blessed one is greater than the blessing. Here it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will and to the praise of His glory of grace, and which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, being predestined according to His will, which works all things in us according to His will. And in the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth of the gospel, your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see, it's about him. He is the wonderful treasure that we have. All other things that have been given to us are to clear the way so that we can go to him. And this becomes important for us to comprehend and to understand. And we see that truth in the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, you'll remember the story. God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to make you a great nation. Matter of fact, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. I'm bringing a redeemer through you. And then God says to Abraham, I want your son, your only son. And I bet it ran through Abraham's mind and heart, wait a minute, wait a minute. My ability to be that blessing, my ability and all the promises that you gave me is in my son. And you want to take him from me? That wasn't the way Abraham approached it. He took his son. He placed his son on an altar. And he was ready to sacrifice his son. And God intervened and brought a ram for that sacrifice. But Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, he knew that even if Isaac was killed, God could raise him up from the dead again. And here's the point. 
Abraham truly believed that the gift giver was greater than the gift. The gift giver is greater than the gift. You see, I lost sight of that. I wanted to be in a church. I wanted the gift. And that's what I went after. And I lost sight of the greater treasure, which is him. And that the gift giver can give whatever gifts he chooses and in whatever manner he chooses. And that's what we need to see. When we're working with people in redemptive coaching, we need to help them to see that. Quite often, couples will come into us and they're just simply pointing the finger at each other. They're saying, if she would change, if he would change. And the first thing we do is we separate them at that point. And we say, before it's a horizontal issue, it's a vertical issue. Because you're choosing at this time to worship something other than God. You're choosing to love something else more than Jesus. And let us help you to remedy that, to get you back where you need to be. You see, the blessed one is greater than the blessing. The gift giver is greater than the gift. What's your greatest treasure at this time? The one that you treasure most is where you're going to find your power and strength. And so we see the third and last area of remembrance that Paul brings in his prayer, beginning in verse 19. As he says, that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. If we were to take time to go to chapter 2 of Ephesians, we would see that we have no power. We would see that initially we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead things don't have no power. And yet God, in his great love, came to us in his power. And he made us his own. And it's his love and his power only that can transform and change. But it requires something very significant, and that's heart surrender. Our willingness to yield ourselves to him. And we don't like to do that. When we meet with people in redemptive coaching, we find people that want to do it themselves. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And you know why? Quite often, they don't want to give up control. They want to do it themselves. They want to do it their way and not someone else's way. And there are times when we get people to this point of understanding it's a matter of heart surrender to Jesus that they leave because they're unwilling to do that. But it's all about surrendering our hearts to him if the change that is needed is going to take place. But we as believers do have one very significant power that Jesus has given to us. And that's the power of choice. We see that in Romans chapter 6. And I remember one night in particular when I was wrestling with this whole thing where Jesus no longer was the one I was loving most and all I was thinking about was how everything in my life was out of control. And then I remembered. 
The one power that we all have is the power to choose who we're going to serve. We always have that ability. And at that moment, I just thought to myself, you know, I may not even make it to the next day and and all this confusion and uncertainty. and, And I have no clue what to do, but Jesus, I can come to you right now. And I can choose you. And that's what I'm doing. And today, that's exactly what you can do. You may feel that Jesus is so distant from you at this point. The pain that's in your life, in your heart, may be so great you just don't know. You may be sitting in that pew like those Ephesian believers, looking good on the outside, but dying on the inside. And at this moment, if you're a redeemed child of Jesus Christ, you can choose. And you can choose him. And you can enter once again into the truth of who you truly are. You can start living your life according to who God has already made you. You can once again allow him to be the treasure that is most important in your heart and life. And you can step into his power and strength to move you forward. Would you bow your heads? The passage ends presenting us once again to Jesus. Would you just listen to these words and recognize this is your Redeemer? It says here that in Christ, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus your first love. Come back to him. Establish him as the one that you love more than anything or anyone. And you have a church body here that wants to help you in that process. Your pastors, your elders, they would love to help you to restore Jesus as first love. Even in redemptive coaching, we would love to help you also. So recognize the power that is yours, the choice that you can make, and draw close to him. Father, you've made this possible through your son. You've given us new life in you. And I pray for my friends here, Father, that they'll fall in love with you again, that they will desire you above all else, even as hard as that is, that they will just simply at this time say, Jesus, I might not be sure how to do it, but I'm turning to you because I can. And I want to learn to serve you and to love you more than anyone or anything. Thank you, Jesus, for the life we have in you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers-